Good afternoon and happy Monday to you. Thank you so much for being with us. Coming up on the show, we're going to check in on an apartment building. It's an SRO in Vancouver where the elevator has been broken for months. Some residents say they are unable to leave their rooms. And we're going to look at some other cases where this has happened in the United States and how that was resolved. We are starting, though, continuing a discussion about that 25-cent single-use cup fee. It has been in place in Vancouver for several months. But there is now talk of perhaps getting rid of that fee. Here is ABC City Councillor Rebecca Bly. She was speaking earlier today with Mike Smith. My concern is Vancouverites have just become resigned to the fact that everything's more expensive in our city, even a cup of coffee. You know, like it's not actually having the consumer think about whether or not uh, because of this 25 cent fee, they would then bring their own cup. I think people who take their own cups recognize that we have to reduce single use waste and we 100% support that. Um, And those that don't are for a myriad of reasons don't. um, More education could help improve knowledge around why we need to reduce single use waste, but a punitive sort of top down stick approach in this fee is not working at all. We are joined now by Ian Tostenson, President and CEO of the BC Restaurant and Food Association. Ian, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me on, Jill. How are you doing? Very well. How about you? I'm doing well, thanks. When you look at this fee, and I know not all of the members of your association would be impacted by this, but many, many would. What are your thoughts on this fee, uh, the 25-cent fee that is still in place? Well, I think uh, Councillor Rebecca said it the right way. I mean, when you when you top down these things, and you 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 know the previous city council uh, really didn't do a lot of uh, what I would uh, deem to be effective work with industry to say, you know, what's the best way for us to approach this? What do you think we should do? Suddenly, we you know it was a twenty five cent fee, and so if you look at some of the observations and studies that have been done. There's very few people that have posted the fee, uh, which which is a requirement. There is very few people, you know, in terms of the overall number of outlets in the city that are offering a um, a cup share program for you know for reasons that they don't have the space, or they don't have the money to invest. And I, I you know, certainly the twenty five cents stays with the owner, but um, you know, sometimes it's just impossible to do that. So I think they've really created a situation where it, it's punitive in the sense that you and I pay 25 cents more for a coffee, and we're not thinking about it. And we're not, what, what bothers me about this is that, and I said this to the city, I said you need to create a program throughout the city that creates an awareness so that if I see Jill with a coffee cup, I'm going to give you a nod to say there's a receptacle right there, and we can start to, to get these things off the street. So I don't think they're completing that. I think, you know, people just drink their coffee and they pay the 25 cents and the majority just go on about it because it's convenient. So I, I actually favor scrapping it and, and coming back with something. The environment's really important. The, the cup wastage is important. Um, there's a lot of technology, you know, whether they're plastic lined or fiber lined in cups right now that's changing. And I think we need to sit with a city with city hall and uh, and and sit down and design a program that everybody feels good about and we all get involved in it not just trying to do it because city hall told us to do it
And even City Hall has admitted that we don't even really have the numbers or the feedback at this point to show, is it creating less waste? Right. Are people using those, those cups or is it a deterrent as far as the, the cups? Do you think, is it that the approach as well, like you said, it's not always convenient. I think especially since people have really gotten in the habit of maybe ordering something online through an app and then picking it up. I mean, if you're doing that, there's no way you can really do that with a reusable cup. Should we be focused? more on cups that are recyclable or cups that that even if they're not so-called reusable they're not going into the landfill yeah totally and and that's just that's like all the uh sing- oh and we have lost ian the uh, phone just cut right off there we are going to try and reconnect with ian tostenson that is ian tostenson with the bc restaurant and food association he's the president and ceo talking to him today because many of the restaurants in his association while they maybe don't rely on those reusable or sorry the the single time use cups they certainly have been charging for them as the city requires you heard ian mention there too there is a requirement that if you are a restaurant or a cafe that uses the single-use cups, you have to have it posted in your restaurant that there is a 25-cent fee. And very few restaurants, I can't even think of the last time I saw one of those letters or one of those signs posted saying that there is going to be a fee. But that is part of it as well, which is also part of the discussion of should this fee be scrapped and we work on something else. I think we have reconnected with Ian. Ian, can you hear me? There you are. You just disappeared. You just went poof there. (laughs) Technology. Yes, Um, exactly. Totally. So I think the tech, you know, so the the advancements in packaging is going to catch up with our need and environment. And we're not there like uh, single serve plastics. There's a whole host of things. And you get into these whole, these definitions about whether it's, um, you know, can go in the landfill or not go in the landfill. There's all these technical things. So we need to do a lot of work. Because all this has to translate down to the consumer to make sense. Once you get the consumer on board and they understand it, then then we're off the races. But I don't think the city's done a very good job of embracing the consumer to really understand. You know, most people think those cups are paper; they can just they can go and be recycled, and, and it's fine. But in most cases, they can't at this point. Has it had an impact on on businesses as far as are people avoiding getting takeout cups or takeout drinks, or is it more? Do you think that people are just eating that cost? And like the councillor said, it's just another thing that people are chalking up to Vancouver being an extremely expensive place to live. Yeah, I mean, we put the price up ten to thirteen percent, something like that, on a cup, you know, you know on a cup of coffee um, or a latte, and uh, so it's inflationary. At the, you know, at, at the worst time, we could do that. So you're right. I think we just put the price up, and people go, "That's the price of my coffee." We don't know whether coffee consumption has gone down. I kind of doubt it because it's one of those things that's a ritual, and people just sort of make the sacrifice. But um, at a time when we're looking, the city, and it's refreshing to think the city's looking at getting rid of the fee, looking out for people in Vancouver in terms of their pocketbooks right now. And then I, and I, my, my invitation to Rebecca and the council will be, let's get together and figure this out. And as I said earlier, design a program that is inclusive, that we all feel really good about, so that, you know, you've got the, the, the coffee shop owner or the association, everybody's talking about the same song sheet, but this one, we're not. We've got, you know, 80 million cups, $20 million in fees going to consumers, and most people go, well, that money's just going to business, so what's really going on here? So there's a lot of ill feelings about this, so I think it's time to scrap it. They should have scrapped it a year ago, 
But this made me angry, Joe, because the city goes, oh, no, you know, you, you convinced us to hold off for a year, and we've held off for a year, so we're going to bring this in. And I'm saying, yeah, but we're not really out of the pandemic at this point. Well, this was last year. And they said, oh, no, irrespective of that, you know, the environment, we've got to move ahead. And I get that. It's so important. But the timing of this whole thing and the way they've stopped and started the whole program is uh, we can do better than this. And the money, though, that is going to businesses, because that was one of the other concerns, was this money's going to, whether it's a small mom-and-pop cafe or a McDonald's or whatever, the money was going to businesses. They were being encouraged to use it for green initiatives, but there was nothing making that happen. Will there be instances, you think, where businesses will miss that money, or have they come to rely on that extra money that they're getting, and really they can use for whatever they want? Yeah, so I mean, what they could do is get rid of the fee, and they can, you know, then they're in charge of their own pricing. So if they want to take, add five cents or ten cents or fifteen cents to price their coffee because of their own operations. Now, uh, Tim Hortons, um, they've got a program, so they're actually reinvesting the money. But this is the difference: is that you know, Tim Hortons and McDonald's, they have the infrastructure because uh, we worked with them. They have the infrastructure to source all the stuff and to invest in the infrastructure, the, you know, the thousands of dollars, and even, you know, the the poor coffee shop owner, sure, he, he might be getting 25 cents a cup, but he's going to have to save a lot of 25 cents in order to have enough enough capital to put in whatever they want to put in in terms of cups and dishwashers and, you know, and try to put a dishwasher into a restaurant these days. It'll take you months and months and months to get a permit approval, and you probably have to rip down the wall to do it. So there's, <laughs> there's a lot of practical things that don't work. But the chains have done a good job. Some of the chains have done an ex- exceptional job, but again, only because they have the ability to do it. The small independent ones are really at a disadvantage. They're going to miss uh, a little bit of the revenue, but like I said, they can, they can change their pricing. But they're never going to raise enough money to be able to do the kind of investment in infrastructure or the environment that the city thought would happen in the first place. All right. Ian, thank you so much for joining us and for talking more about this today. Appreciate it. Thanks, Jill. Happy New Year. Well, this story might make you shake your head a little bit, mainly because of the attention it's getting. And yes, I realize we're about to give it some more. But is it a hoax or is it real? Talking about M&Ms and the parent company saying the spokes candies are being retired because there is just too much pushback. There is too much divisiveness that is being caused by the spokes candies and a little change to how they look. Well, Lindsay Meredith is joining us now, Professor Emeritus of Marketing at SFU. Lindsay, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, Joe, always, always a privilege. Well, I didn't know we were going to be talking about this today, but we are taking a look at the controversy <laughs> controversy following the mascot refresh over at M&M's. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, boy, talk about the tempest in the teapot. Here we go. The problem is, Jill, this can can become financially very, very important. You've got the hardcore right wing against the hardcore left wing. Whatever you want, names you want to use, I don't care. Wokeism versus Tucker Carlton or or or, or uh, rednecks. I, hey, the the names don't matter. Here's what matters. M um, Ms are between a very big rock and a hard place. They tried to appeal to the woke crowd. And they got a huge backlash push from the right-wing crowd. Um, then they basically tried to move back the other way again because now the left-wing crowd were on their case. 
So this is all about in marketing. We call these market segments and sub-segments. So the hard right wing are one segment and the hard left wing are, are another segment, the, so, you know, the socially responsible crowd. And then there's this big thing in the middle. That's actually where your market segment is, and that's actually where the money is. So now what's happened is, watch out, that big segment in the middle might be getting tired of this pendulum swinging to extremes. And how do they display that? Easy. They stop buying your candy, and they stop buying your stock, and that's even tougher. And so just backing up a bit, if people haven't been following along the, the M&M's saga as well. So the parent company of M&M's, they decided they did a bit of a brand refresh and it was a flip the status quo campaign. And it was a campaign. It was raising money. It was to support women in creative industries. And it made the candies it identified as three of the spokes candies as female. And like you said, Tucker Carlson didn't like that. Uh, some people spoke out about it. Uh, did the company, do you think, did they have any choice after that happened to, to kind of dial it back? Or, or what do you think about their response? Well, that's where it gets really, really nasty. And it's a really good question you're on to, Jill, because what happens is once you start dialing back on, uh, doesn't matter which end of the pendulum you start dialing back on, get ready for pushback from the other end, from the other side. So if you dial back, and you satisfy Tucker Carlson in the crowd, what you'll do is reactivate the wokeism crowd and really fire up some more of the social network stuff that you were trying to get away from when you went over and kind of moved right wing and, well, it turns out it looked like you were holding hands with Tucker Carlson. Uh, so they've decided now that uh, the, the, there was an, a kind of an apology. There was a statement issued saying that they didn't realize that the candies and the spokespeople for the candies would be so divisive uh, that they yeah. they were they were just going to do this. Uh, they've now chosen uh, Maya Rudolph, who's a well-known comedian, who is going to be their spokesperson. Uh, what are your thoughts on right. that? So they've backed off completely and gone. Okay, we won't do the candies yep. anymore. We'll we'll put this popular former uh, SNL. Yep cast member will put her out there another really really good point you've raised because once you start to make that move um you again risk uh starting another backlash going this again it might come from the center center right um so in their attempt to quote be <laughs> candy neutral <laughs> um now they're stand ready to be accused of yet catering to uh black america and black women and so it sets them up. It gives them more bait for the Tucker Carlson mob as well. Uh, what's their best answer? Their best answer in the end is to say, you know what? We're a candy for God's sake. The rest of you guys all grow the hell up. And what that means is we're going to choose people that are going to represent our candy and not get involved in your political wars because all you guys are doing is using us in your battles. And we're not there to be used in your battles. We're a, we're a candy corporation. Um, we do a pretty damn good job of that and leave us alone, and we're not going to try to appealing to all of you. So going to black female comedian, yeah, are they going to run into flat? I'll put money on it right now. Um, what's their possible best response? Might be to say, you know what, let it go, everybody. Well, we're a candy company. She's a good spokesperson for our candy company. Um, that's what we're going with. Now, having said all of that, you're talking to a professor, three opinions from one guy. Um, you got to watch out. Whenever you go for celebrity endorsement, that paints your brand. Whoever the celebrity is has tremendous branding power. So if you want the classic example of, of nuclear implosion, is Donald Trump. 
So Donald Trump destroyed more good product by simply having his name associated with it than any single celebrity I, I, I think I'd be able to name. There were a few of them like O.J. Simpson, a few other guys tried hard. But remember, that's the risk. You start going with brand spokespeople, um, make darn sure you've done your homework on it, and you really know how stable they're going to be and what remember what their brand position is going to look like out there and are they going to say the right thing. Because, for example, if she says the wrong thing, that's going to come back and hit your brand. So you're going to live with that one too. So it gets very, very tricky. It's really a balancing act. And uh, even with the, using a spokesperson, that, that can be dangerous. No question. Um, can it be helpful? Yeah. They're, I think their move here is, hey, she's an SNL comedian. That's how we want to handle this, this brand image. We don't want this brand to, uh, of M&M to be part of the battlements and part of the, uh, the howitzer crowd for either, either side of extremism. And so this, I think, is their corporate uh, thought process right now, and that's what got them to this stage. Um, is it possible wind down? Yeah, it could be a possible wind down. Just make darn sure you know who you're hiring and that he or she is a stable representative. And something you said there, too, uh, that, you know, we're talking about a candy. We're talking about the mascots yeah. for a candy company. I mean, uh, are we really at the stage where companies now, the mascots uh, have to be an, a non-gender specific cartoon? And that's the only way. And even then, I'm sure you'd get some pushback. But like you said, it's a candy. Do we not need to get past yeah. this? Well, you're absolutely right. I think we will. I'm the eternal optimist here. Um, the reason I say that is when you start to look at markets and how they behave, you'll get these wild swings to the old pendulum. It goes completely to one extreme, then swings right back. There's pushback, goes to another extreme. The good thing about pendulums is eventually gravity takes them, and eventually they settle down and move to a middle range. And that's the range you're supposed to be in. Um, the line I've often used with my students is, look, watch out. Don't get caught by the tyranny of the few is what I refer to it as. Don't let corporate objective be driven by minorities. It's probably going to get you in trouble. Um, and the corollary uh, saying I used to give my students, don't start appealing to these extremist groups, whether they be Tucker Carlson or the woke crowd on the other end. And my, you always wind up speaking in these, these, these uh, short-term expressions because uh, students will re- remember them. And the line is, don't wrestle with pigs. You both get dirty and the pig likes it. <laughs> Do you think there's any chance this is a a stunt, given that the Super Bowl is right around the corner? Well, that becomes the other issue, too. Now, you're on. Hey, you should have started working at universities, Jill. The flip side (laughs) of that argument argument is hold it. Um, There's a couple of ways to get attention for your brand. One is you spend a lot of money and you advertise it. The other thing, which is far more powerful, is you give a lot of other people ready to discuss it. Now, the reason you want them to basically do that key issue, as long as you come out on the positive side, um, is that uh, it turns out the recall. When this conversation comes from your show, the recall by consumers is much stronger than if M&M certainly just tried to advertise their position. So by actually getting media coverage, yes, from the right, from the right corners of the globe, that can be extremely powerful in supporting your brand. Having said that, if you pick up a lot of negative, what I call social equity, um, in other words, you're not viewed as a good guy corporation at all. Um, I have seen at least one really 
well uh, and statistically supported paper, in my opinion, and it basically correlated corporate um, stock positions with negative comments from the media about the company. And yeah, guess what? Strong positive correlation. The more bad mouth you get, the more your stock drops. Well, if you don't think that's wasted on corporate accountants and finance guys, boy, <laughs> give your head a shake because <laughs> it is it is the god. So it gets tricky, no question about it. All right, what an uh, interesting one, and we'll have to find out uh, what happens next. Uh, Lindsay Meredith, thank you so much for being with us and for talking about this today. Always a pleasure, Jill. Take care. Residents of a single-room occupancy building, or an SRO hotel, as they are often called in Vancouver's downtown east side, say many have been trapped in their rooms. That's since the building elevator broke down, and that happened last September. Global News caught up with Victor Dickinson, and he described what it has been like. Um, we have no elevator for the last four months. It's been very difficult for me to get anywhere. I can't get anywhere. I've been stuck in my room for the last four months trying to get help to get down. is really impossible. Yeah, it's been a struggle. So the Portland Hotel, which is about 20 years old, just a bit older than that, it's operated by the Portland Hotel Society, the Community Services Society, along with Vancouver Coastal Health and BC Housing. Uh, Global News did reach out trying to get more information about the broken elevator and what was happening with that. The housing minister did confirm that the elevator requires a complicated fix and that has been delayed partly because of challenges with the supply chain. Now, this story is similar to something that is playing out in the United States as well, and a story that's coming out of California. We wanted to talk a little bit more about that and find out what is happening there. So joining us is Annette Herrings, who is the lead attorney for the tenants of a building also with elevator issues. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me, Jill. Can you tell us a little bit about the building in question and what the tenants are dealing with? Well, the building is over 100 years old, and so is the elevator. And the defendant in this case is AIDS Healthcare Foundation, and they purchased the building back in September 2017. Their expert testified that the elevator was out of service for two years. And my clients continue to suffer because the elevator has not been fully modernized is what our clients are arguing here. And so therefore, the, the elevator continues to go out of service on a regular basis. Wow, two years it seems like a really long time. And I, from what I understand, too, that your clients and people who live in that building are also people in some cases that have mobility issues. Right. So we're arguing that all of... Uh, all of our clients have significant mobility issues. Um, three of them uh, use wheelchairs to get around. One of them is an 85-year-old Native American. She's Navajo, Julia Big Boy. She has stage four stomach cancer. And unironically, on the day of her deposition, the, video, the elevator was out of service. And so I personally had to take her down the stairs and up the stairs. And, you know, there's video on it on YouTube. And it's really, really devastating. 
And when you talked about the the foundation that runs the building, this is not a a, a startup foundation. This is a well-established foundation with some pretty deep pockets, isn't it? Yeah, you're right. This is the AIDS Healthcare Foundation, and they have to file their taxes publicly because they claim to be a nonprofit. And in their publicly filed taxes, it shows that they're about a $1.6 billion company and have about $200 million in cash and cash equivalents on hand. So we're arguing that they can afford to fix the elevator for sure. And don't they also, it seems like a bit of irony as well, isn't this a foundation that also goes after bad landlords? Yes, AHF has, according to public records, spent over $100 million on certain ballot measures about rent control and has, according to public records, uh, paid over $100,000 to an embroiled city councilman named Kevin DeLeon as a quote-unquote housing advisor. So AHF has kind of redirected a lot of its financial energies on providing housing, uh, and they purport to do this in the interest of low-income people and to address the homelessness situation. However, there's public records that show Within the first couple years of AHF buying the Madison Hotel, which is the subject of our lawsuit, that they evicted about 40 people. And what happened to those low-income people, we, we don't know. And the, the Madison Hotel then, and this building, I, I know it sounds overly oversimplified, but why, why don't they just fix the elevator? Now, that is a question that you're going to have to ask AHF because we can't figure it out. Right. And have they given any reasons? In the case in Vancouver, one of the reasons given is supply chain issues and that it's a complicated fix. But I I was curious if in this case, because there are so many similarities, have they also given up any any kind of reasons as to why the elevator just keeps failing? Yes. I mean, in their publicly filed pleadings, they've said a few things. One is that the city of Los Angeles has hampered their ability to get enough electricity into the building to properly um, handle the elevator. Uh, The city of Los Angeles subsequently has settled with the AHF Foundation for almost $100,000. And then AHF has also claimed that the benefit of fixing the elevator is not outweighed by the hardship it would cause AHF. Hmm. So be, because they're saying it would be such an expensive fix or that, that it would have some kind of financial hardship? Yes, that is one of their defenses in their answer. It was that it would cause an undue financial or administrative burden. And is that the the case? And I know you can't go into great details on the case, but this this is what led to the lawsuit filed by the the tenants, several tenants of this particular building. Uh, what is happening with the lawsuit? Well, we're supposed to go to trial. We do have trial preference, which means that we have to have it quickly because a couple of our clients are so ill, including Julia Big Boy, who has stage four stomach cancer and is going through chemotherapy. 
So we have to start the trial no later than this February the 8th. So that's not too far away. Are you confident that it will start? Um, We never know what happens, but we, the plaintiffs, are prepared to go to trial for sure. Right. I understand, too. I mean, some of the you you outlined uh, kind of how you had to carry a client up and down the stairs for that deposition and and some of the what's been going on as far as uh, tenants in that building. I understand as well that a few years ago, somebody actually fell down one of the open one down the elevator shaft. Yeah, that's one of my clients, too, Kenneth Owens. Um, You know, AHS and the property manager at the time, Statewide Enterprises, uh, circulated a video of what happened to Mr. Owens out in the hallway. And during this lawsuit, um, they swore under oath that, oops, the video was destroyed. But I came across the video, and it shows that my client did, like, just open the door. And he's blind, so he opened the door and stepped into an empty elevator shaft, and he fell down. Oh, my goodness. Was, did, did he recover from that? Well, he wasn't using a walker that day, and now he's using a walker at all times. Hmm. Does that and and the other issues with this, are there no codes or or building laws that would require, I'm thinking even in the case of if there was an evacuation of the building, if there was a fire or something, we all know that when there's a fire, you're told not to use the elevators, that you should be getting away some, getting down the stairs or getting out a different way. Are, Are there code violations or other concerns in that sense? Well, there are Los Angeles municipal codes and uh, California uh, building and safety codes that require a building that has an elevator to have a working elevator. So we're claiming that, but the main things that we're claiming in our lawsuit is disability discrimination and failure to make an accommodation for our clients' physical disabilities, meaning fix the elevator. Right. And, and is it different, too, when we're talking about a building that's being run? I mean, code, obviously, that, that's law and that's what, what wh- whoever the owner is should be following this. But is it different, do you think, when we're talking about a building that's being run by this multi-billion dollar corporation or, or, or uh, foundation? I have seen no law that says new buildings have to comply with the law, but old buildings don't have to comply with the law. And What I would say is that if I go out and buy a car and I don't do any sort of pre-purchase inspection of this car and I drive off the lot and six months later it sputters to a halt, that's on me and I have to pay to fix the car or I get rid of it. No, very, uh, very true. No, it's an, an interesting example. Um, the, going to trial then, is that the next kind of chapter in this, do you think, as far as trying to find some resolution and trying to make this building safer then for the residents? Yeah, that's what we have to do. I mean, we've had this case filed since February 2021. I have another case that I'm co-counseling with Hennig, Kramer and Ruiz, which is a class action, which I filed back in March of 2020, and we make the same claims for the elevator being out of service 
The only difference in the class action is that we're claiming it under habitability laws and not disability discrimination laws. So here you have a quote-unquote nonprofit organization that has $1.6 billion of income every year and $200 million cash on hand, and they have known at least for three years because of our lawsuits that the elevator has been broken and it has still not been modernized. All right. Well, thank you so much, Annette, for joining us and talking about this. Uh, the similarities, although a different scale, but uh, so many similarities to some of the cases or stories that we're seeing here in Vancouver. Thank you so much for your time and for joining us today. It's my pleasure, Jill. Have a great one.